0: This morning, I'd like you if you would open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 9, Hebrews chapter 9. We're going to skip the first 10 verses. You can read that at your own leisure. It's worthwhile to see, but I would like for us to focus down later. If you are following along, we've been talking and looking at that particular passage has to deal with the earthly sanctuary that was the sanctuary that was created and made out with Moses, out in Mount, under Mount Sinai, when the Lord laid out the organization of their uh, community, which would be sometimes called the Jewish economy. And so they would have these, how they lay them out. And they would lay these tents and everything out exactly where they were supposed to be, according to tribe, according to position. Of where they would be and so the very center of the camp would be where the ark of the covenant sat It was to be the center and god would be occupy the center So we understood that they made it a promise and they made the first covenant promise and they said we will We will make this promise to god that whatever he said we will do we talked about that a little bit last week The sanctuary out in the outside that was outdoors uh, For the sanctuary was to be like a pattern of the one in heaven was to be patterned after the one in heaven, the scriptures say. And to pattern that after, what would that actually mean? What does it mean to have it patterned after the one that is in heaven? Well, it all depends who you ask. And you can get many different answers. So I thought I'd just highlight just a bit so we can kind of focus here what might be some of those answers that you might get. Some say, and I've heard this, that the heavenly sanctuary and the throne room of God are two separate buildings, that there's one place where there's sanctuaries and the other place where there is the throne and room of God. I've heard that talked about and mentioned to that, but the question we arise, well, how could that be? How could that be? Because it would appear if we were to look at the very center and the very thing of the tabernacle was that God would dwell in the most holy place in the Shekinah glory, I don't think I'm going to need a good battery. Can you see that? The Shekinah glory there at the mercy seat in the Shekinah glory, kind a bright light would shine. The presence of God would be there to portray, I believe, the throne room of God. So there are those who would say, well, these are two separate buildings. And there, have, there are some difficulties with that interpretation, but some hold to that. I remember this discussion went on in college. And, of course, all of us bright young boys, as we're sitting there going through theology training, I um, like to argue back and forth, but, of course, I always won. Oh, if you believe that, you are. Okay, so the others say, others say that the heavenly sanctuary and the throne room of God are the same place with a holy place and a most holy place, so those two compartments that are there to make like that, which they say reflects just like the one that Moses made so we would have these compartments there. Here's a model that someone has made, where you have the outer courtyard, and then you have the uh, holy place and the most holy place, as portrayed in this model. Uh, I got once <laughs> My son, when he was in academy, his Bible teacher said, um, they want you to make, make something, make something physical for it. And he said, well, I would like to make the sanctuary. And the teacher said, well, why don't you just make one little part of it? No, I want to make the whole thing, just like you see there want to make the whole thing well the teacher said fine so he comes home and um, forgets all about it and then about three days before it's due he says, dad dad i i need to make a sanctuary what i need to i need to make a sanctuary really dad drop everything and start start getting your woodwork out and start making it boy did we work late into the night but we hauled it in and then i don't know what happened to it after that i do know but i don't want to discuss it so <laughs> <laughs> so there was there was this concept of that there was this two compartments these two sections of the sanctuary in heaven that was reflected there on that on earth so it was william miller and if you're familiar, who came up with the 2300-day prophecy, as he was studying the Bible, he was, he was interpreting and looking at it and he thought that the sanctuary to be cleansed in Daniel 8:14 was the earth. And that Jesus would come, and he would cleanse the earth by fire. That's what would happen. And so he thought Jesus is going to come. And he thought sometime during the summer or during the time of 1843 to 1844, Jesus would appear. It was Samuel S. Snow who actually came along later and said it's going to be on October 22, 1844. That's when Jesus would appear. And as all of you are well aware, Jesus did not appear on October 22, 1844. And they called it the Great Disappointment that came out. This is a picture of Ascension Rock. And these people are not part of the group that was there originally. They were there visiting. You can go see this place up in New England if you like the ascension rockets called but after the great disappointment if that disappointment that happened that jesus did not come those who had believed in this this is before there were seventh-day adventists those who believed that jesus was supposed to return on october 22 were greatly disappointed as you can imagine and one of them was hiram edson and hiram edson he was making his way he was going back. He didn't want to walk down the streets, the normal streets there, because they didn't want people coming out and say, Hey, I thought you were going to heaven yesterday. What happened? You know, that would be very embarrassing. And he's deep in thought, he's deeply disappointed. So as he's walking home, he's walking through this cornfield to avoid people, and he's thinking about what happened and so forth. And so as Hiram Edson came up with a different view, he came up and said, Well, Jesus, instead of coming from the sanctuary, To earth was going from the holy place into the most holy place on the Day of Atonement which started on October 22 so that was Hiram Edson's view was that Christ ascended to the holy place at at these when he resurrected and then on October 22 went into the most holy place that was kind of Hiram Edson's view and early Christians early Adventists they thought that that had some comfort to them and that that had some merit as they were trying to think, obviously Jesus didn't show up, so what kind of an answer can we give What to satisfy our own minds, how that would work? And so they would say, Hiram Edson's view. And for a long time, that prevailed as being the answer. Others, still, we're still dealing with how they did the heavenly sanctuary. Others, Christ ascended to the most holy place at his ascension. Not into the holy place, but in, right into the throne room of God. The two compartments in heaven aren't really necessary, which you might find kind of stunning a little bit, that aren't really necessary, because maybe they're trying to teach us something different than just one compartment to another compartment. So they use for their text Hebrews 8, chapter 1, which we will not look at. Specifically we've looked at before and said we have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty of heaven. You see that setting night down in the throne room. If we say that's the most holy place then that's where he sat down who serves notice this now who serves in the sanctuary the true tabernacle set up of the Lord not by mere human beings. So we find that he is sat down at the right hand of father and then he goes into his ministry as high priest. You see that connection? right there mate. So perhaps they would say that perhaps the problem we are having is we're taking things too literally, too literally and not seeing the true significance of the symbolism that it's trying to teach. We will not address that issue here today. It could take us hours. But it would be something to stimulate your mind to go. Those different views, you may have your own view of how it goes. That's fine. Everything's good. But I'd like you to come back now to Hebrews chapter 9. So that's basically leading us up through the first 10 verses. He talks about the earthly sanctuary and so forth. And then he moves on to something very important. And that's in Hebrews chapter 9. We're going to begin with verse 11. But when Christ came as high priest, of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, That is not made with human hands. That is to say, it is not part of this creation. I would like you to notice, when Jesus came. Now that phrase, when Jesus came, has incredible significance because when Jesus came, it changed everything. Everything changed when Jesus came. Our whole perception about God changed when Jesus came. So that revelation of Christ when he came is significant. So when, when Paul puts right in there, when Jesus came, it, he's trying to say, look out for what's going to take place. Look out what's going to happen. When Jesus appeared, when Christ appeared, all changed, everything changed. When Christ appears, the law is embodied now in a life. Wrap your mind around that. Now, if you remember... They gave the Ten Commandments on tables of stone. God wrote with his own hand. Then the ceremonial laws, or the laws to how they were going to regulate, the first five books were written on scrolls. They were actually placed next to the Ark of the Covenant, but they were there the law. When you ask a Jewish family about what's the law, they will say the first five books. They won't just say the Ten Commandments. But what we had was, you would have that, they would take and put blue straps on, the blue represented, the color blue represented the law, they put blue on their sleeves and around their garments, so that every time they reached out their hand to do something, oh yeah, there's the law, got to remember. But when Christ appeared, when Christ appeared, we saw the law in the person. He showed us the law in life. He showed us how to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind. How to love others as yourself. He embodied the law of God, of love to God and love to others. When you see Jesus' life, when you look at it, you would see what the law really means in a person's life. It's important for us to see that. Because then it's not just written on stone, it's the way I live. Talked a little bit about that last week. So when Christ came, when he appeared, he showed us the embodiment, the embodiment of what it meant to live as a person of the law, because the law was there. It was the guiding way, and it was just as natural for him as it is unnatural for us. When Christ appears, and the forgiveness about which people have long talked about Becomes alive and it grips our hearts because we see what Christ meant when He forgave them. He would accept people and forgive them <laughs> even though they sinned repeatedly. He still forgave them. And that forgiveness that brought, it brought a new thing. It wasn't just, well, you and you're just slaughtered an animal and you're done. And you're he knew how to cleanse the heart. Forgiveness. Christ appears. And God becomes at once more majestic than a mind can conceive and near, nearer than any heart can desire. So here, here he's showing us, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, he told him. Seen me. So in understanding what God is like, we look at Jesus to see what God is like because he is God. And we see that power. We did not be able to see that. We saw it in the smoke. We saw it in the pillar of fire. We saw the burning bush. We saw these different things going back and forth. But when Jesus came, he revealed to us the Father. When Jesus appears, Christ appears, and all our old distinctions between race and race and between class and class are shabby and flimsy. You see, the Jews are very careful. I'm a Jew. You are a Gentile type of thing. You are... You're not a Jew, so you're out. And there was status. When Jesus came, made us all brothers, all the same, all one, through him, then all of those distinctions were flimsy. They meant nothing. When Christ appears... And the slave lifts his head with hope. Finally, when Christ appears, women and a woman becomes a man's comrade instead of his possession. In some parts of the world, that's what it's like. My sister, my sister's husband teaches uh, orthodontia at uh, Loma Linda at the dent school there, and um, he is well known around the world for his skill in orthodontia you would want your orthodontist to be taught by him so uh, he's very very good at it and uh, I'll add a little something in a moment but he gets flown to Saudi Arabia by the wealthy there to put braces on their kids and you imagine flying them there fly back so he goes to Saudi Arabia and puts uh, puts braces on there on these bratty little kids uh, so he goes to do that, but he never takes my sister to Saudi Arabia because it's not safe for her. Because the women are possession there. Um, happen. This is a sidelight. You don't get this at any extra charge. But, but um, his specialty is wire bending. Can you imagine that would You know, you for orthodontia, you have to know how to bend those wires all around. And his specialty and. Is teaching those orthodontic students how to bend a wire. You may learn how to do that, how to do that, how to bend a wire. It says it's funny to watch it because the girls have a harder time because they haven't done that kind of stuff with enough, as much as the guys have. I didn't know if that was something I should ever repeat. But Jesus, uh, women women became comrades instead of possessions. Christ appears. And all of the frantic pursuit of wealth and pleasure seems strangely empty. Strangely empty. With, with a pursuit, our frantic pursuit of wealth. Every once in a while, uh, we have some exotic cars come and use our parking lot to, around here, around the church. They come down here. Some of you have seen them. Sometimes we'll see a Ferrari. Sometimes we'll see a Lamborghini will come or something like that. I keep thinking, well, it's pastor appreciation. Probably going to get one of <laughs> happen uh to come but you realize that you look at that oh wouldn't that be great to have a car man think of the power and so over like that as soon as you buy it it's on its way to the junkyard isn't that right yep as soon as you, it's on its way eventually it gets there and well some people preserve them and take them and put them in plastic and keep them going but eventually it's deteriorating and after you have it for a while it's just a car to get you around, even though it goes really fast and people look, it's still, yeah, 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 just a car. Because it becomes empty when Christ came. Christ appears, and our souls find no rest until we follow him. And some people don't understand that that's the problem. But the reason they are so restless, why they're absolutely, Is because they're not following him. They don't sense that. Christ appears. And the old symbolism of the tabernacle has lost its luster. Did you get that? The tabernacle has lost its luster because it has met what it was symbolizing. And now the gold and the leaves and the tables and the incense, there is the Christ. There is the Christ. So when Christ appears, all changed. Everything changed. Okay, Now back into verse, back in Hebrews 9. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once, there it is, he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of the heifer, which was offered for touching the dead, sprinkled on those who were ceremonially unclean, sanctifying them so that they were outwardly clean. Outward, notice that, outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblenished God, cleansing our consciences from acts that lead to death. Cleansing the... There's something in the power of the blood of Christ when he offers something in God's power that cleanses our thinking so that we may serve the living God. Something there. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, a better covenant, God that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Now that he has died... As a ransom to set, uh, to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. He set them free. He set them free. So there's something in the power and the blood of Christ. The power and the blood of Christ has set us free. There's something more in that. That the sacrifice of Christ. Now I need to deal with one important issue. If you'll skip down to verse 22. Verse 22. In fact. The law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. You may have, there is no remission of sin. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness, which raises a really, a lot of questions. Question raised like, for example, was it necessary for Christ to die? Now, don't jump too quick here. Was it necessary for Christ to die? Now, I've heard this over the years about that it was not necessary for Christ to die because God knows how to forgive and he wouldn't have to do that. So therefore, therefore he, he went to a cross just to show us his great love, that he would go to the cross to cause show us how much he loved us. I've heard that. I've heard that explanation. But the Bible says without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. There's no forgiveness without the blood sacrifice. Which raises the question in your mind, was it God who required the shedding of blood to somehow awaken his mercy? Somehow to, to, to get him to be more, if he could see the blood, see that you really meant it, you had a blood sacrifice that really meant that you were serious. And that would awaken and say, okay, that you've done that, as merciful. That's the exact same reason that is used by the pagans, even during time that were worshipping idols, they used that idea that we must do something to appease God. If you remember at Mount Carmel, when Elijah was there and that fire was coming down, they were cutting themselves and slashing themselves. Why? To try to awaken, to get Baal to come and to answer with fire. It was that whole purpose of the thing. We have to do something to show him, to awaken his mercy, to act. Is that why God requires the blood sacrifice? Is that the shedding of blood? Why should God, who created all things, need the blood of animals to appease his wrath? Would He need all that? Why would he need all that? Well, you'll be glad you came today, because I'd like to share with you today to have happened that it's not about appeasing God's wrath. The sacrifice of Christ is not about appeasing God's wrath. Here is why the shedding of blood is crucial. It is because we as people tend to minimize what our sins are. And that's just natural <laughs> because we, we don't like it to be exposed to anybody. And we tend to think, well, it's a minimum, and we're going we're to, do, you know, it's, it's no big deal. Because we all do it. We all have sins. It's not that big a deal. So we, we think, and we look at that, and we say, well, we minimize that. Therefore, the shedding of blood, the shedding of blood was a constant rebuke to our tendency to make light of our own sins. It was a constant rebuke to that. It costs something. And because of the shedding of blood, Christ went to the cross, because he gave up his own blood, it now has an impact on how I view my own sin. It makes me more serious. See, the shedding of blood makes clear that God's forgiveness of sin is not a casual matter. It's not something just, oh yeah, thanks very much this happened during the time of following the Reformation with Martin Luther and we even with the Calvinists they would have their, their um, particularly with the Lutherans, that they would have the raising of their, th- the mass and they would have their coming in and you participate in the mass and at the service the and uh, you would have then in your confession. So all you need to do is to go, you just go and have your mass and you go do on what you Jolly well pleased. You just come back and have mass next Sunday. and then So it just became a routine thing. Every week you go do it. It got cleansed up. No big deal. And you're on And out the way you go. Behave any way you want. Because I just have to walk in and have some bread and, and uh, some wine. And I go out the door and I'm good. But the shedding of blood. The shedding of blood for our forgiveness of sins. Was not to be casual. That is why we do not have. The Lord's Supper is celebrated here every week. We don't want it to be casual. We don't want it to be just, oh, just fitting it in there. If Christ, if Jesus had not given his life for forgiveness offered under the first covenant, would never have been validated. If he had not given his blood, because the blood of bowls and so on, would never work. It does not forgive sins. It's Christ who forgives sins. And by the shedding of his own blood, he indicates to you what your sin costs. And therefore, he's hoping in response, that when you sense what my sin is, that you will confess and get freedom and victory over it. It's a journey we're all on, isn't it? It's a journey. And it's a struggle. out of verse 28 so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many praise God and he will appear a second time not to bear sin but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him this is the only passage in the New Testament that uses the word second for coming this is the only one the rest say he will come, will come and close him. This is the only one that uses the reference. We use the reference, the second coming of Christ. Okay. This is the only passage that indicates that. The second time he will come a second time. So the first time he came, the first time he came and went to the cross, he did something for us. He took away the sins of the world. So when we confess our sins, when we sense that, confess our sins to him, he will take away our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But the next time, the next time that he will appear, that we are looking forward to Jesus to come, he doesn't come to take away sin. He comes to redeem us and take us home for all those who are waiting for him. We were talking about this in Sabbath school class. Forgive me for repeating myself, but in, in Sabbath class we were talking about the importance of what a day that will be when Jesus will appear. What I, Can you imagine what that would be like? It's hard to imagine what that would would be and how that would be in life how it would be when christ appears steve green was talking about in one of his songs that when jesus came up from the grave he laughed he was laughing at the victory that had been won he was the joy of that yes he's came out of the grave can you imagine on resurrection morning and we see jesus i i don't know it's like the song imagine i don't know if i'll be speechless or whatever i tend not to be but, but you'd go and you say, I think I'm going to laugh at the joy of that morning when Jesus will appear and take us home. I can imagine my angel coming and saying, come on, let's go. Well, your heavenly Father is waiting for you. And I said, yes, I'm ready, I'm ready, I'm ready. Let's go. So when Jesus appears the second time. So the pathway to that appearance goes through the cross and grows through the precious blood of Christ. There is power in the blood of Christ because it brings you to forgiveness. It brings you to change. It brings you to eternal life. And it gives you hope. I thank you, Father, for the beauty of the sacrifice of Christ. You don't do this because of wrath, you do this because of sin. And that we may recognize what sin does. For the wages of sin and death. But Lord, you gave to us, you gave to us a way of escape through your son. I thank you, Father, for that great gift. But may we remember what sin costs. And never take it casually. Or that the forgiveness is casual. But real, true, deep, lasting. When you will cleanse us from sin and remove it and to remember those things no more. We thank you, Lord, that you do that for us. In your precious name, amen.